If you would remain standing uh, for the reading of God's word, I know that's not uh, a tradition y'all have here, but it is a tradition across the Reformed world, and it shows reverence to our Lord. Uh, my name is Jonathan Williams. I am the associate pastor at Clover ARP. Um, I've been there for nine years, uh, part as the youth director, part as the associate pastor. Before that, I worked with uh, John Oliphant at Gastonia. I was his intern. Um, he's a great man. I love him very much. He's one of my dearest friends. So it's a pleasure to come and be with y'all this morning. But if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read the whole uh, chapter. And again, please forgive my voice. I'll do the best I can. Hear now the word of the living God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another, re- another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper <coughs> than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we have to give an account. Since we have then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will remain forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy again. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now. We confess that we are a sinful and a needy people, that we need your help to worship you. And we ask that by your spirit, we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up as the prophet Isaiah saw him. And Lord, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd and that by your spirit, we would offer ourselves to him promptly and sincerely. We ask that we would hear a word from God and not a word from man, that you would work through the weakness of the preacher. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, most of us can relate to the idea of needing rest after a long trip. 
Uh, many of us have gone on long trips for our vacations. Maybe you went to go see the Grand Canyon, maybe Mount Rushmore, something like that. Or maybe you've just taken a long trip to the beach. Or maybe you have been bold enough, brave enough to pack up your family and go all the way to Disney World. Wherever you went, when you got to the hotel, the beach house, the monument, wherever, especially if you're the driver, you want to rest. You just want to take a few minutes to take a break, to just rest. I know me, I want to walk in, drop my luggage down, and rest, lay on the bed for just a few minutes before we go and do all the stuff we're going to do. The idea of rest is often something that is foreign to us, but it is a main point of the scripture and it's a main part of what Jesus has come to bring us rest in our day and age and we don't really think about it that much but this morning we will see that Christ has come to give us a greater rest uh, we'll see that the promise of greater rest that the word reveals our hearts and lastly we will see our great high priest so let's see the promise of greater rest look at verses 1 through 10 the author of Hebrews has just spoken in chapter 3 about how Christ is greater than Moses, about how the rebellious people in the wilderness did not continue in faith and they did not enter God's rest. That there were those that were faithful that continued, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that continued in faith and entered it, but there were also those who refused to believe. He starts chapter 4 saying that the promise of rest still remains. And then he gives a warning in verse 1. He says that the promise of rest of God that was given to the Israelites that remained to the people in David's day in Psalm 95, that promise still stands for us. And since it does, we must, we ought to fear lest any of us should fail to reach God's rest. He's already told us in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 19, how you lose uh, your stake, how you fail to enter into God's rest. And it's through unbelief. The rebels in the wilderness failed to believe that they would be able to enter the promised land. And he says it again in verse 2. He says that good news came to those, uh, to them the same as it has come to us, but they were not united in faith with those who believed. In other words, they did not believe in God's promise to give them the rest of the promised land. You remember the story? The spies go into the promised land. They look over it. They spy it out. They see what the land is like. They see the people in it. And then they come back. And they say, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's a wonderful place. And there is no way we can take it. The people are giants. And we are as grasshoppers before them. And it's only Caleb and only Joshua who say, no, no, no. We can take it. The Lord can take the land. The Lord will use us. He will conquer Canaan, and it will be ours. But the people, they listen to the bad report. And so in punishment, God allows them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire rebellious generation dies. They failed to enter the rest of God. Only their children and Caleb and Joshua and their children are able to enter into God's rest. The author of Hebrews says, you and I face the same danger, the danger of unbelief. We are able to miss the rest of God by not believing in the promises of God. 
the Hebrews that he's writing to are tempted to go back, to go back to the old Jewish system of sacrifices, of offerings, of all of those things. And he is telling them, if you do that, if you go back, you have forfeited your rest, that you have rejected Christ and that you cannot enter the rest of God. He says that there also remains, though, a rest for the people of God, those that do choose to believe. He says in verses 3 and 4 that God has rested from his works in Genesis 2-2, but in Psalm 95-11, David writes to the people of his day that they shall not enter my rest. And then he makes his point in verse 6. So look at verse 6. He says that there remains a rest for the people of God, that we are able to believe in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are able to enter into the rest of God, and that those who refuse will not. They will fail to enter it. He warns the people through David hundreds of years after the Exodus, after this event. He tells them, do not harden your hearts the way that the rebels did in the wilderness. The point of all of this, everything that the author of Hebrews is saying is this. God is inviting us into his Sabbath rest that began on the seventh day of creation. This is a rest that we enter whenever we die and go to heaven. But you also have it now if you trust in Jesus Christ. You have that fellowship with God on the earth. The author makes the point even further in verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8 because there is something that happens that is hard to see in English, but we, we will be able to see it. So look at verse 8. It says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another rest later on. He's saying that God wasn't talking about the promised land. Yes, it was pointing to greater rest, but the promised land, Canaan, was not the point. There was something else coming, a greater rest coming. He says that if the promised land was it, there would be no need for God to promise another rest. There's a play on words here in Greek. The New Testament, as you know, was written in Greek. And here, if you read this passage in Greek, it would say this. If Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That's because our Lord's name in Hebrew is Joshua. And the Greek version of it is Jesus. The author of Hebrews is making a point. The Joshua of the Old Testament gave temporary rest because he was pointing to the Joshua of the New Testament who would come to give you full, lasting, and greater rest. The point of all of this is this. Jesus has come to give true rest, rest that cannot be lost, rest that we can have forever. See, the people lost the promised land. Because of their idolatry, they were thrown into exile in Assyria and then in Babylon, and they never got it back. They don't have it back today. The promised land remains uh, un unconquered, but true rest is found in Christ. The promised land, the true promised land, is the new creation. It is in Christ, through faith in Him, that we enter into the rest of God, and we walk in that rest until we have full possession of it, not only in heaven, but in the new creation. 
Have you ever come back from a vacation and you needed a vacation? I'll take that as a yes. That you were relaxing on a beach and then you came home and there was all this work that you had to do. You had a project you had to do. You had to catch up on all the work that you missed. And at some point you might have thought, why would I even go on vacation? If I, did, if I didn't, I wouldn't have all this work to do. It's because uh, you had to actually come back and go back to work. You see, uh, we weren't resting completely and continually. In the same way, the people of Israel did not inherit the lasting rest whenever they got the promised land. It pointed to something greater that we have in Christ and ultimately in the new creation with him. This morning, are you resting in Christ? I've been asked uh, in my ministry, why do we go to church on Sunday? I've been asked by children, by youth, um, by adults. And aside from it being the day that our Lord uh, rose from the dead and a commandment from God to be at his house on Sunday, it's also practice for our life with Christ forever. Sunday is, you see, Sunday is not a day for us. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It is the, God has set it aside, not for our entertainment, not for our hobbies, not for our sports teams, not for anything like that, but for himself. See, the Bible tells us that it is the one day, the one day in the whole week that we are to spend in rest and worship of God. We worship, we rest by worshiping God. That's what the Bible tells us, by spending the whole day in the worship of God, by being in his house and hearing his word taught. I've also heard, well, I can worship God just as good on a boat as I can in God's house. And uh, while I would say no, God would also say, no, you can't. God tells us where to be. God tells us how to worship him in his house with his people. So our lives are overly programmed with school, with work, with hobbies, with sports, with events, with all of these things that we have forgotten how to rest. It's not just taking a nap, and it's not vegging out on the couch. It's not going on your boat. It's not doing any of those things. It is being with God and being with his people, practicing for our life in the new creation. That's what you were made for. That's what we were saved for. If it sounds boring to you, perhaps we should look inward in our hearts. This is why God has created us. We can be so focused on this life and on everything we've got going on that we can totally miss the rest of Christ that he has given us and that he has made for us. John Calvin put it this way. The highest human good is therefore simply union with God. Let us not miss our highest good, rest and union with Christ for things that will leave us tired and worn out. So we see the promise of a greater rest. And secondly, we see that the word reveals our hearts. Look at verse 11. Again, he gives a warning to the people that he's writing to and to us that they are to strive to enter God's rest and not fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author of Hebrews is not saying you're able to lose your salvation in Christ. You're not. He later on says that that's impossible to do. Uh, rather, he is saying that real faith as continually presented in the scripture is a faith that continues throughout your life. Faith is not something that you have one day and then you lose it tomorrow or the next day or five years from now. Faith is something that we have as a gift from the Holy Spirit and we continue in it 
throughout our lives by his power, daily walking with Christ. Faith is something that perseveres in our life, that continues all throughout eternity. The author is saying that we must continue in obedience to the Lord. We are not able to walk in purposeful disobedience to Christ and still claim him as our God and as our Lord or to claim the promise of rest. F.F. Bruce, another commentator, puts it this way. God is not to be trifled with. His word cannot be ignored with impunity, but must be received in faith and obeyed daily. His, his and the author of Hebrews' point is, is this. You, we, have faith as a continuous walk of obedience until we reach the goal. They're not saying you have to have perfect obedience. You can't have perfect obedience. We can't do that. But to have genuine obedience from the heart, truly seeking to obey the Lord and serve him every day. Though we may fail, though we may fall, repenting, but also seeking to obey. Then he moves on in verse 12 to talk about why, <coughs> why, we have to have this genuine obedience and this continuance in faith. It's because, in verse 12, God's word is living and active. It's not like the words of men. The words of men you can ignore and there is no consequences. But God's word you cannot ignore. It is alive and it works in the hearts and lives of those that hear it every time it's spoken. Isaiah 55, 11 teaches us that God's word does not return void. It always accomplishes its purpose. It either softens a heart or it hardens a heart. The Holy Spirit is always working through the Word of God and the people that hear it. The Word is not only living and active, but in verse 12, it is two-edged, meaning that it is a sword that cuts both ways. It is able to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Now, the author is not saying that you have different parts of your soul, He's not giving an anatomy lesson. His point is this. The word of God is able, like the double-edged dagger of Ehud in Judges, to make the most precise cuts at the very core of who we are. It reveals our sin plainly. It makes known the secrets that lurk in the deepest and the darkest parts of our hearts. It shows whether our obedience to God is genuine or whether we're just here to get people off our backs. It shows the deepest intentions, the secret things of our heart. It makes them known. Those things that are hidden, hidden from everyone around us, the word of God makes it known as it cuts us as a razor-sharp sword. Not only are these things revealed by the word of God, but there is nothing that is hidden from God. Look at verse 13. It says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. It's not just his word that is piercing, but it's the sight of God himself. That he, has, he knows us. He sees the deepest parts of our heart, and he has known them from all time. It says that we are all naked and exposed to, whom, to him whom we must give an account. The idea here is very clear. We are to continue in genuine obedience to God by faith, not because we are trying to earn our way to God but because every heart, every thought, every action, and every intention of your heart is already known to God. We cannot fool him. 
We cannot trick God into thinking we are obeying him genuinely if we are not. He already knows. You can't trick the one who has laid us bare before him. So let us continue in faith and obedience, knowing that he knows all things about us. But he has also brought us to himself in Christ. So there are a few universal experiences in life. And I believe firmly that one of them is getting in trouble as a child. That we all have gotten in trouble. We've all done something that our parents told us not to do. We tried to hide it. Uh, we tried to make sure they didn't see us. And then they caught us red-handed. And we, had, we were all right, though. We had all the excuses ready. We had our speech prepared, and we went through it. And then our parents said, I've been watching you the whole time. And we just kind of hung our heads and realized, well, we're done. We're caught. We have to take whatever punishment we're given. That's kind of what it's like when you try to hide, when we try to hide what we're doing from God. He knows all things. He sees the thoughts that you're having right now in reaction to what I'm saying. We cannot hide from him. He knows our hearts. This morning, the word of God has worked in our hearts. We have either been hardened to the truth of Christ or we have recognized the reality of his word and we are being, being brought closer to him. Are we trying to hide in plain sight from God? Is that why we are here? That if we are here and we hide in plain sight, we think it might be better for us. Beloved, he knows. He sees it. He knows the sins that we're trying to hide from him, to put in the darkness where he can't see them, or at least where we think he can't find them. He knows when we only act like a Christian, when our friends, when our family, when the preacher is around. He knows when we think that we've escaped his eyes, escaped his sight, that he'll never find out. Why try to hide? If we live our life like we cannot hide from God, like Christ actually sees everything that we do, then we will have nothing to hide. You see, we are called to live before the face of God because we do whether we like it or not because God sees everything. So we should not try to hide from God. We shouldn't try to pass off fake obedience to God as a relationship with Christ. If you have never come to faith in Christ, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He will give you lasting rest. But if you do know Christ, have genuine obedience to him. Not perfect, not trying to impress the people around you, not trying to make them think that you are a Christian, but seek to be cut by the word of God, repenting daily for our sins, living before the face of the one to whom we have to give an account. So we see the promise of a greater rest, that the word reveals our hearts. And lastly, we see our great high priest. Our final point is in verses 14 through 16. After telling us all of this, that we cannot hide from God because the word of God reveals it all, he says something extremely comforting. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The author of Hebrews is telling us that we are able to enter into the rest that God has promised by holding fast to our confession, our belief in Jesus Christ. Because 
not because of our efforts, but because of the effort of our great high priest. You remember the high priests of the Old Testament. They ministered in the tabernacle. They ministered in the temple. They made the sacrifices. And once a year, they, on the Day of Atonement, they made the biggest sacrifice. But they were only humans. And they were sinful humans at that. But here, we are reminded that our high priest, he doesn't minister in Jerusalem. He doesn't minister in an earthly temple. He ministers in heaven before the throne of God, not just as a man, but as God himself, as fully man and as fully God. The one that speaks on our behalf is not a son of Aaron, but is the son of God himself. He is a great high priest, not simply because he is the son of God, but because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, a question should come in your mind. How is it that the Son of God, who is perfect, can be tempted? How can he know what it is like to be tempted if he's perfect? The author answers that question. He says that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. You see, during Jesus' time on the earth, and now throughout eternity, he is without sin. But Jesus was not without temptation. While his temptations did not come from a sinful nature because he doesn't have one and never has had one, he does have, he did have, excuse me, greater temptation than we have ever faced. He was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness and he faced him down. But the temptation didn't stop there. Throughout his life, Satan tempted Jesus to get a crown without a cross, to not suffer in this life. But Jesus refused to give in. If you can imagine two people with their hands outstretched and they are pushing against each other, holding each other's hands, pushing against each other, constantly in tension. Whenever one gives up, they give in, they fall over. They might be hurt. They might uh, hurt themselves badly, but they don't have to resist anymore. That is what we do every day. We try to resist temptation but we fail, and we find relief from temptation through our sin, but we still have guilt, shame, and all of these things. Jesus never found relief from temptation. He never gave in. He never stopped resisting. He always resisted temptation. So Jesus knows a struggle far greater than we do. Jesus' struggle against temptation that he won was far greater far harsher than ours. The point of all that is this. You have someone in heaven that knows what it is like to be tempted to sin. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted from a sinful nature, but he knows what temptation feels like, greater than you and I have ever felt. Go to him. Ask him for help. He has, he, that is the reason he did it, so that he would be able to help us but the author, of, uh, the author of Hebrews says also this, that because Jesus can sympathize with us in all of our weakness, we are to go boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace and find grace to help in time of need. We have to remember that when we come to the throne of God, we don't come to a judgment seat. We don't come to the judge ready to destroy us. We come to a father 
a Father who loves us, who sent Christ for us, who gave us the Holy Spirit, who loves us dearly, one that wants to hear every need, every concern, every temptation, and is able and willing and will help with them. We talked about the high priest. You remember on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the Lamb, and they would go into the most holy place. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, were two angels, cherubim, with their hands, with their wings outstretched. That lid was called the mercy seat. The high priest would sprinkle blood seven times on it, and then he would leave. Jesus has gone into the heavens, and with his own blood has made the judgment seat of God a mercy seat for us, for his people. We are able to go to that throne, to our loving Father, and receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. All of us speak to our parents in a very specific and hopefully respectful fashion. Uh, no one talks to your parents the way that you do, except your siblings. No one talks to my parents the way that I do, except my siblings. My dad, is a, he works at a machine shop. He's a safety manager there. He has an office, and, he's, and it's in Gastonia. If I go to visit my dad, I just walk in the door, sit down, and start talking to my dad. And we can talk for as long as we want. But if someone else comes and they want to come into my dad's office, they do, they, hey, Tim, do you have a minute? If I'm there, if my brother's there, he doesn't have any minutes to spare. He's with his children. He's talking to us. He's listening to us. He wants to be with us. It is the same way with God. God is your father. If you trust in him, you can go to him with anything, at any time, at any moment. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to have all these phrases and things that you want to say to him. Just walk in, sit down, and talk to your father and ask for help. This week, do you feel the struggle of temptation? Are you beaten down by the battle of your sin? Do you feel like there is no one in the world that knows how you feel? Well, there is. The Lord Jesus Christ faced greater temptation than us, and he overcame it. He overcame it not only to save us, but to bring us rest with God and so that he could help us continue in faith. You are not called to be a Christian by yourself. God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has united us to Christ and the Father dwells within us. They all three do so that we can continue in faith. He has given you the church to help you continue in faith. Don't try to be a Christian on your own. You'll fail. You'll fall and you won't be able to get up. You need help. We need help. That's why Christ has given us all of these things. Trust in your high priest who has redeemed you, who can sympathize with you, and who lives to help you in your time of need. Again, if you don't know Christ, if you've never experienced this rest, repent and believe in him, and you will be saved, and you will have everlasting rest with Christ. This morning, we have been presented with rest, uh, rest from our sins, rest from trying to fake our way through life, rest from hiding who we are from God, and rest from trying to live this life by ourselves. Christ has come to bring us into communion with God so that we could rest with him. 
Will you receive it? Will you live in this rest? Or will you work yourself until you are broken and alone and even in hell itself? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.